Am I on now? I'm going to call that my bad. I'm a rookie. I've never done this before. Um, uh, as he said, my name is Brandon. We're preaching through a series that we're calling uh, Liturgical Living. If the word uh, liturgical or liturgy is new to you, you never heard it, that's okay. I will, uh, I'll explain it in a minute. But the goal of the series uh, is to try to take a few weeks before we hit the season of Advent uh, and try to connect some dots between what we do on Sundays and us learning how to live from what we do on Sundays. Because Sundays, when we gather together for what we're doing right now, this is not simply an educational event. This is not a time where you come to just learn and gain some new knowledge, but a time when we come together and we learn how to live from what we do together. So let me frame it up this way. Uh, I'm I'm 41 uh, now, I think. Uh, I became a Christian when I was uh, 22, and uh, in the early years, I went to a variety of different kinds of churches, some very kind of super structured robotic on Sunday, and then some really charismatic that had, you know, well, not that, all right? And uh, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, And then before Sojourn, I worked at a church that was kind of somewhere in the middle, you know, like some structure, but not a lot of structure. And then uh, five-ish, five and a half years ago, when I was talking to Sojourn uh, about coming down here, I I asked, how do you guys think about Sundays? When you think about what you do on Sundays, how, how do you think about it? And they the answer was this. We use uh, an intentional liturgy. An intentional liturgy. So let me define the word liturgy. Liturgy is simply uh, the form, the structure, the order to your corporate worship. It's what you do when you gather together for formal corporate worship as a church. And so you'll hear some churches say things like this. We are a liturgical church. And you know, some churches say we are decidedly a not liturgical church. But the reality is that that dichotomy doesn't exist. Every church has a form, a rhythm to what you do, an order to what you do, and that form or that order is your liturgy. So it might be that you have no order, but having no order is your order when you gather together. Every church has a form and order. Every church has a liturgy. So a few months ago, uh, we handed out, we started handing out these bulletins. One side's got some announcements. The other side, uh, it says our liturgy explains it and explains the different parts of our gathering. And what, what it wanted to do for this series is to be able to take this, the parts of what we do on Sundays, and say, how can we learn how to live from what's on here? How can we use this to teach us how to live? And so today, I'm going to give an introduction and a bit of an overview, and then next week we're going to drill in, uh, and we're going to talk about living with assurance, and then the week three, the week after that, we're going to talk about living the benediction. Sound good? Yeah, good, because we're doing it. Um, no matter what, we're doing it. Uh, here's, how, here's how I want to handle it today. Uh, I want to ask three questions. One is our passage, Romans 12, 11 and 12. Is it even talking about corporate worship? When it says this is your spiritual worship, is that even talking about corporate worship. If yes, and I'm obviously tipping my hand, then what can we learn about corporate worship from our passage? And then three, how how can we learn how to live from what we do together on Sundays? All right, so question one, is it even talking about corporate worship? Question two, if it is, then what can we learn about corporate worship from our passage? And then three, how can we learn how to live from what we do together on Sundays? All right, so question one, is this even talking uh, about corporate worship? 
I want to start by answering that by framing our passage where it is in the overall book of Romans. I apologize. I'm still under it, and at 9 o'clock, the stuff just took over, and it wasn't pretty. And so I've got tea for the 11 o'clock, and we're going to make it this time. Romans is essentially divided into two sections. There's Romans 1 through 11, and then 12 through 16. 1 through 11 uh, is Paul laying out this rich and beautiful theology of the gospel and how the gospel reconciles Jew and Gentile. Uh, Jew and Gentile, the two ethnic lines of the day, the two economic and social uh, status lines of the day, people who are at times enemies with one another, how this gospel reconciles the two of them. And then 12 through 16 are the implications of that gospel. Now, our passage is intentionally the end of the first section and the beginning of the second, because Paul ends the first section with this beautiful doxology, this beautiful doxology, this crescendoed doxology, and then from there goes, now therefore, offer your bodies living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship, which is where we're going to begin in verse 1. Let's look at it together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, worship is the ascribing of worth or honor and dignity to a person. And so in this verse, when it says worship, your spiritual worship, is this talking about corporate worship, what we're doing right now, or is it talking about someone's own personal inner devotion to God? Which one is it speaking of? The way to answer that is by trying to get into the mind of the original audience. So when Paul, the author of Romans, wrote this letter to the church in Rome, when they hit the word worship, what, what would they have thought? What would have come into their mind as they read uh, this letter? And here's the, what I think the answer is. The word worship uh, is, uh, the, it, so the New Testament written in Greek, we translated into English. It was the Greek word latria. Latria, it's a, it's a noun. And here, here's why this matters. The noun in particular matters. Every time this word is used as a noun in uh, their translation of the Old Testament, so they had a Greek translation of the Old Testament, every single time this word was used, it was in reference to Israel's temple worship the formal worship that Israel did in the temple, how they came and approached uh, God, came into the presence of God. Never in the Old Testament was it used of someone's personal devotion, inner heart orientation to God. And then in the New Testament, the same word gets used four times, three others besides this one, all three times in reference to Israel's temple worship, Israel's formal worship, twice in Hebrews 9. In fact, one of the times in Hebrews 9, it's translated in, in most translations, uh, rituals. It was the rituals they performed coming into the temple as they came in to worship God. But the most compelling one for what the original audience would have thought when they hit Romans 12 is how the word was used in Romans 9. This is the other one. Here it is. They are Israelites. The Israelites, the people of God in the Old Testament. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship the Latria, and the promises. So here's the point. There is no chance, absolutely zero chance, that when the church in Rome got this letter and read it, that they would have thought anything other than formal corporate worship. There was no chance they wouldn't have connected the dots between Israel's temple worship and what was becoming in the early church, the formal liturgical worship of the church. The question becomes, is that all they would have thought of? Is that all? So it's 
Certainly, that's what they would have thought of. The question is, is that all that they would have thought of? And the answer to that is no. Because in addition to the context of offer your body as a living sacrifice, which we'll come back to in a minute, latria has a verb, latrio, that gets used throughout the New Testament. And let me show you a couple of examples on the way it gets used in the New Testament. Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Revelation 22.3, this is the end of the story. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So here's the point. This is about the point at 9 o'clock that it started going sideways, so just brace yourself. When it's used as a verb, it's talking about their inner devotion, their heart's orientation to worship. Used as a noun, it's talking about corporate worship. So the answer to our question of when they read Romans 12.1, are they going to think corporate worship? The answer is yes, but not only. Yes, but not only. Because worship is what we do together right now, and it's how we live our lives. It's what we do when we gather together, and then it's the way of life for followers of Christ. We live as worshipers. So let's talk about what we're doing right now and ask then if this is talking about corporate worship and that is the dots, those are the dots that get connected, then what can we learn from our passage about corporate worship? Well, first we learn that it should be both logical and emotional. Let me show you. Look back at Romans 12, 1 again. See where it says your spiritual worship Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I promise this is the last time that we're going to talk about a Greek word. This is not meant to be a Greek lecture, but I seriously didn't know how to teach this without actually getting into it. The word spiritual is the word logikos. Logikos. What English word does logikos sound like? Logic. There you go. You get an A. Logic. Logic. It means to be carefully thought through, which is why some translations will say reasonable. This is your reasonable worship. Worship should be logical. It should be carefully thought through. Why? Because God is the source of logic. God has a mind, and worship should reflect the mind of God. That's why one of the objections to Christianity is this. Uh, I I want to believe, but I I don't want to check my mind at the door. Like, I wrestle, and I want to believe, but I I don't want to check my mind at the door. And, and the thing is, the Bible is not asking you to check your mind at the door. The Bible is asking you to bring your mind with you through the door and think. So if you say, I, I wrestle with doubt, here's what it, the Bible would say. Bring your mind to bear on your doubts. Learn how to doubt your doubts. Learn, learn how to recognize what's the presupposition that I believe that sits underneath this doubt, and then learn to challenge that presupposition on your own. Learn to doubt your doubts. If you, if you say, I, learn, I, I struggle to apply the gospel into my workplace, at my home, it would say bring your mind and think through the applications and implications of the gospel for your workplace or for your home. The Bible is not asking anyone to check their mind at the door. Worship should be logical because God has a mind. You're to bring your mind with you when you come in here. And our Sundays are structured in such a way that they have what we call a gospel logic to them. The the gospel logic goes like this, that God is holy, we are sinners, Christ saves us, and Christ sends us. God is holy, welcome, come into his presence, but in the presence of a holy God, recognize that you're, you're a sinner in need of grace, and you need Christ to save you, and then Christ then sends us back out into 
the world. There is a gospel logic to everything that we do, and we hope that that gospel logic would be both formative and engaging and challenging and make us think and teach us what to believe about God, ourselves, and the world, or challenge what we believe about God, ourselves, and the world, and might lead to rich, intellectual, stimulating conversation among one another. Worship should be logical, but also emotional. Also emotional. Look, look back at the doxology in verse 33. Specifically, look at the first word. What's the first word in Romans eleven thirty-three? Together. What is it? Oh. 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 Douglas Moo, brilliant commentator on the book of Romans, says, you want to know what Paul is doing right here? Paul is making an emotional assertion. He's making an emotional statement. Remember, Paul has just spent 11 chapters laying out the theology of the gospel that reconciles Jew and Gentile, people who are enemies, into one body. And now he, he's reached the end, and he is having an emotional experience that, that he is making an emotional assertion that the gospel is making him feel. That the gospel shouldn't just be something that you learn to think about, but it should make you feel. It should strike you to the core and make you feel, which is why this doxology is not meant to be read like this. It is not meant to be read, oh, the depth of the riches. I wonder what kind of riches he might be speaking of there. And the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? Are they really unsearchable? I wonder what the apologetic arguments are on both sides of that. It's meant to be read like this. Oh, oh. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Paul has spent 11 chapters given the theology of the gospel, and now he is having a mountaintop experience. How many of y'all have ever been to the top of a mountain? Show of hands. When you make your way to the top of a mountain for the first time, and you turn and you look out, you, you don't simply just think. You feel. I remember the first time I uh, for me, the first time was when I was 30, first time I went skiing. The guys that took me skiing, they said, hey, we'll teach you how on the lift on the way up. Um, true, true story. They didn't teach me, and it was ugly. Um, but then we took another lift, and we went to the top of the mountain, and I remember getting off and turning around and looking out at the snow-covered horizon. And when you're looking at that snow-covered horizon for the first time, you don't simply think about what you're seeing. You feel what you're seeing. Paul is here, having spent all this time going through the theology of this gospel that reconciles enemies, and he is feeling what he has been writing. He is feeling what he is seeing. He is sitting at the top of the mountain, looking out and can't simply just think, but has to emote. He isn't just thinking, he is feeling. What does that have to do with corporate worship? Corporate worship is not supposed to just be a time where you come and you learn a few things, but it's supposed to be a weekly chance to go to the top of the mountain and look and feel. Specifically, 
as we get to the end of the sermon and we transition into the communion table and then you come and you partake as we have just opened the word and talked about the grace of God in Christ that you have and then you come to the table and partake of that grace when you're holding that bread, partaking of the cup. It's not supposed to just be something that you are processing intellectually in your mind. It's looking out and you should just feel, feel the grace that has been given to you in Christ that you are sharing in right now. What we do on Sundays, it should be intellectually stimulating and emotionally engaging, which means our music should have lyrics and beats and rhythm that, that are sung in a way that teach us what to believe and engage our emotions. And because Jesus experienced the full range of emotions, we sing the full range of songs. We sing songs of celebration. We sing songs that lead us into confession. We sing songs that lead us out into the world. That's why we do not do happy, clappy worship here. I don't know what happy, clappy worship is, but whatever it is, we don't do it. We don't do it. We do not have an emotionally shallow, happy, clappy God, and so our worship is not emotionally shallow, happy, clappy worship. We have a God who feels anger over our sin, anger over how our sin separates us from God and from one another. And so we stop and we confess our sin together, and we do it early so that it can lead us into the grace of God, so that our confession can help restore unity and relationship with one another and with Him, and that makes God happy. So that when we make our way to the happiness of God, we're making our way in a rich, robust, concrete, and crunchy way, a crunchy happiness. I don't know what a crunchy happiness is, but it's robust. It's grounded in what Christ has done for us. Worship should be logical, teaching us what to think about God, the world, and ourselves, and it should shape our emotions. But there's something else we learn from our passage. We learn what the fuel for corporate worship is, the fuel being awe and wonder at the majesty of God. Listen to the doxology again. If you don't mind, close your eyes and just hear these words. Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This doxology is drenched in awe and wonder at the majesty and the glory of the God who saves and reconciles. It is a doxology in response to the Father sending His Son into the world to live and to die in our place, to reconcile us to Him and to one another. And it's that doxology, that awe and wonder that leads us into worship. And from that doxology, He can go, therefore, present yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. It's awe and wonder that sits as the fuel for worship. You want to know what a dead church looks like? It's not a church that just isn't growing numerically. It's not a church that doesn't raise their hands when they sing. It's not a ch church that doesn't have X, Y, and Z as part of what they do on Sunday or midweek. Dead church is one who has lost its awe and wonder at the majesty of God and His redemptive and reconciling work in the world. It doesn't just sit and ponder the majesty of what we have been swept up into. That's what it looks like. So it's supposed to be logical, emotional, and fueled by awe and wonder at what God has done and is doing. So now our last question, how? How can we 
take Sundays and learn how to live from it. Well, there are two commands in our text, two imperative, two imperatives do this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and then do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So learn how to present yourself, and then be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So present your bodies first. So what does it mean to present your body? It means to present all of yourself, to bring all of yourself to the table that no part of your life goes untouched by the gospel. Nothing in your life goes untouched. It redefines everything. You become a gospel neighbor. You become a gospel roommate. You become, you, you, you bring the gospel to bear on your marriage and your parenting. Everything about you is shaped and formed by the gospel. And when everything is redefined by the gospel, it sends you out as a living sacrifice. This phrase, living sacrifice, this is an intentional paradox, right? Because sacrifices were animals offered for sin, and they died. So you didn't have a living sacrifice. The sacrifices died. There was no such thing as a living sacrifice. So what does he mean by living sacrifice? Well, he wouldn't have used the word sacrifice if living didn't mean killing something. I'm going to say that one again. He wouldn't have used the word sacrifice if living didn't mean killing something. The question is, in order to truly live, what do we have to kill? And one theologian commenting on this phrase, living sacrifice, he put it like this, you're not living the Christian life. You're not living the Christian life unless you are putting to death the idea that you have the right to live as you choose. You're not living the Christian life, they said, unless you are putting to death the idea that you belong to you and you alone and to no one else. Putting that to death is how you avoid conforming to the world. How you avoid Conforming to the world is to put to death the primary narrative of the culture and the context that we live in, that you belong to you, no one else, and you get to choose how to live. But he didn't stop with do not be conformed. He also said, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this is where I want to land the plane and talk practically to us, Sojourn Heights, about how we can take Sunday and let it shape how we live. Let it teach us how to live. We started, as I said, a few months ago, handing out these bulletins, and here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to all have one. I want you to take it with you. I want you to put it in your car, in your house, wherever is most helpful to you. Uh, I want you to have it and be able to use it and refer back to it. I want you to use it as a source, as a resource to remind you what is true, to remind you what is true about you. Because when you feel like you don't belong with God, when you feel like I don't belong with him or I have done X, Y, and Z and he has obviously abandoned me, I can look at my life right now. I look at my life right now and it is clear to me that God has abandoned me. I want you to grab this and I want you to read the call to worship and I want you to remember that every week God says to you, I want to be in your presence and I want you in mine. I haven't abandoned you. I want to be in your presence and I want you to be in Mind. When you feel like your sin is overwhelming you and you just keep doing what you don't want to do, I want you to grab this and read the confession of sin. And then I want you to confess your sin and I want you to do so knowing right after it comes the assurance of pardon. That when you are prone to believe that God doesn't love you or that what you did is simply unforgivable. Like that thing where it's if you knew what I did in college or what I did two weeks ago, 
you would know that I have done something that simply cannot be forgiven. When that is you, I want you to grab this. I want you to read the assurance of pardon, and I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, I died for that too. And then I want you to hear him looking you in the eye, saying to you, I love you because I love you because I love you. Why did I choose to love you? Simply because I do. I love you because I love you. And then when anxiety and depression are overwhelming, and peace is nowhere to be found inside your soul, or when you are fighting with your roommate or your spouse, or there is division creeping into the church, I want you to read the passing of peace and remember that you have peace with God even if you can't find it inside yourself. And because you have peace with God, it means this, that there is no marriage too broken, no friendship so strained that Christ can't heal it. And then remember that we preach from the Bible, the Bible that you can read it yourself and you can have your mind shaped and formed by it. And listen, you don't even have to understand it when you read it. The Bible says the Bible is hard to understand. You can just read the Spirit-inspired Word and let that shape your mind, mold your mind, renew your mind. And then I want you to read the section on the Lord's Supper or communion, and I want you to take that into your parishes, these smaller groups of men, women, and children having a meal together and living life together. I want you to take it into your parishes, and I want you to see that meal as an extension of this meal. And whenever, whenever you are prone to believe that I am unwanted by God or unwanted by this church, I want you to hear and remember God saying to you, I want to have a meal with you. What do you mean unwanted? Listen, I don't invite anybody to my dining room table that I don't want around my dining room table. God is saying to you, I want to have a meal with you. I want you at my table. What do you mean unwanted? You're not unwanted. Are you out of your mind? I want to have a meal with you. Come on back. I've got a spot at my table waiting for you. And then all of us, I want you to read the benediction before you go to work. And I want you to remember that you've been sent by Christ into the world to live, proclaim, his gospel, because James K.A. Smith is right. Liturgy shapes what you love, and love determines how you live. What you love shapes and determines how you live, and so let's take what we do on Sundays into our everydays, and let it shape how we live. Let it teach us how to live. Let us be reminded of what is true about us, and about God, and about the world we've been sent into. Let's not have it just form and inform our Sundays, but let's have it inform our everyday. And then, let's come back next week, and let's talk about what it means to live with assurance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to talk about what we do on Sundays and how that can inform and shape and mold and renew our minds and teach us how to live, to teach us how to live as your people in your world. For those of us uh, who are sitting here going, but I'm, I really am the one who feels unwanted, unwelcomed, unloved. I pray right now, that right now, as I'm praying and that as we come to the table, that they would hear you by your Spirit whispering to them, you are not unwanted, you are not unloved, I have a spot at my table ready for you. Meet us with your grace right now. We need it. We need it. We pray this to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Amen.